0: What's up, everyone? Today, we're joined by Natalie Miles, head of marketing technology at Chime. Natalie started her career as a financial counselor at the Consumer Credit Counseling Services of San Francisco. She then took on the role of quality assurance specialist at Lending Club, a fintech marketplace bank, where she was eventually promoted to operations analyst. Natalie then moved over to Credit Karma, best known for pioneering free credit scores, where she started as marketing operations analyst and was later promoted to marketing operations Manager, And for the last three years, she's been head of marketing technology at Chime, a fintech company that offers no fee savings accounts, where she's built and managed a holistic MarTech stack supporting all channels and functions within the marketing org. Natalie, thanks so much for taking the time today. Excited to chat.
1: My pleasure. This is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to on my hawker walk. So big fan.
0: <laughs> awesome. Appreciate that. I, I, I'm really intrigued by the journey from financial counseling to marketing operations. I know you've like stuck to fintech as like the, the company and in the in-house role, but I'd love to hear the journey. Like how did your financial background influence your move into marketing ops?
1: Yeah. Um. So the, the common thread throughout my career has always been working in these very mission-driven uh, personal finance companies. Um, part of that was just sort of informed by my experience growing up in a working-class household and then also graduated right at the worst you know, economic crisis in the last, what, like 80 years. Um, so I've been very drawn to these companies that are uh, focused on solving and disrupting a lot of these legacy institutions which historically haven't done the best job of meeting the needs of your average american consumer um so the way i, I think about like a lot of these you know everyone in tech describes their companies as mission driven what i think about <laughs> what what that actually translates to me is uh you know more positive some businesses where The business value is connected to user value. And if you think about a lot of these legacy institutions, they're very zero-sum or negative-sum business models where they only profit when their customers suffer. So if you think about overdraft fees or charging for your credit score, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a a lot of opportunity to uh, align business value to your user or consumer value. Um, so that's always been sort of a, a north star for me. Um, and then in terms of the the journey to marketing technology, um, you know, I have a very generalist background, which I think is very beneficial uh, for marketing technology. Um, having a diverse set of experiences to draw from, I think, creates better system level thinking, which I think is uh, an important skill for any marketing technologist. Um, but yeah, you know, I had some experience as a financial counselor, which gave me a lot of member empathy for all these uh, fintech companies that I've worked at and then hopped on more of like the business operations workforce management path. But even there, there was, um, you know, uh, sort of a, a marketing technology component. I mean, it wasn't marketing, but like, how do we use tools um and capabilities to make our uh support functions more efficient. So mm-hmm. instead of enabling marketing teams, it's enabling support teams. Um, and then just found myself in marketing, um, started on our uh with a uh, lifecycle marketing experience. Um I think one having that operator experience in a marketing channel is really helpful. uh, In terms of marketing technology, you actually start to understand the needs of marketing um, because of the pain points you're experiencing every day. Um, And then that becomes very transferable even to other channels. Every channel is different and has its own nuance, but there are some common um, threads and commonalities across channels, you know, in terms of, right, how is this channel going to drive growth or a certain business outcome? Um, but the, the tooling and capability needed to deliver on some of the, that channel level growth and capabilities is going to be a little bit different. Um, so yeah, going from sort of like, uh, a generalist background to a specialist on life cycle and then more of a generalist again. So, um, you know, in marketing, we talk about the T shape marketer a lot, this idea of, as you rise through, um, you know, leadership positions in marketing, you start off specializing in a specific channel, but then you kind of branch out and you need a broad understanding of all the other different channels and how they all work together in concert to inform your overall marketing strategy and your marketing mix. Um, I think that's very much important in the realm of marketing technology. If we think about preventing data silos and more marketing orchestration to power things like omni-channel journeys, you have to have that broad overview of all the different marketing channels.
0: Yeah. Very cool. So for life cycle, like the, the channel was, was email like that, that was the focus for you.
1: Yeah. So email and push a little bit of SMS.
0: Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, similar for me also. Like it was a, uh, uh, the, the first channel that i kind of stumbled into like a lot of companies are just like oh like email is free even though email does have a yes. lot of associated <laughs> costs to it there but I love yeah. the the T-shaped comment um I love your comment about like the generalist background lends well to Martech because when you're in Martech, you're supporting the ads team and you're supporting the content team and the email team. So having that like hands-on experience with some of those channels is is super beneficial, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um I think a lot of marketing orgs tend to structure themselves around these different channels. I would be curious to learn more, like there are certain uh, marketing orgs, right? They might structure based off of more of an outcome. So you might have an individual who dabbles in both, you know, your paid channels as well as life cycle. Um, you know, like if you're focused on a retention outcome, you might have the same person running paid retargeting ads as well as your life cycle campaigns. That can be challenging. There is, something to be said for having a subject matter expertise into each of these channels, even just, you know, going super in depth on um, like Google search requires a lot of expertise to scale. Um, in the startup world, uh, you know, I think it makes more sense. You know, you, you kind of start off often hiring generalists in the startup world, and then you start to layer on specialists. I think the danger of over-indexing on channel subject matter experts And why MarTech often becomes a thing is you have a lot of these channel marketers onboarding tools with this specific use case of solving their channel needs. Hmm. And then as you start to um, have more of a broader channel mix and you start wanting to do things like omni-channel marketing and personalization and creating, um, you know, symmetrical experiences across your channels, you really need someone to come in and figure out how you're gonna connect all these tools and data together. And if you've just got siloed channel managers focus on their own individual channels, right? You're, you're not gonna be able to, um, you know, achieve that, uh, you know, omni-channel marketing vision.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh integration is definitely I think like tough to to figure out like in startups or or bigger companies too. And I know like in, in your background you've had a taste of the bigger fintech companies as well as uh some of the more scrappier teams there, but um, I I'm curious your take on this. So, uh, this, one of the articles that, um, I've been deep into recently that kind of lives rent-free, uh, in my mind right now is a uh, Casey winter's article about the problems with Martech and why Martech is actually for engineers. And so I know that you have this generalist background, right? So really curious your, your take here. Uh, so he, he basically argues that like, Martech as an industry or specifically the vendor side is facing this decline due to the idea of in-house engineers and the success of vendors is basically hinging on serving these engineers that are increasingly handling tailored solutions in-house. So I'm sure you've been part of these like internal debates about do we build something internally or do we hire or not hire like purchased like a third party tool to do this maybe to have like a support team that's bigger and it makes more sense but like maybe we have like skilled expertise in the house to build that so what's your take on this is is martech yeah. actually for engineers
1: yeah it's uh casey's got a spicy take um <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm actually a really big fan of casey and i'm a huge shill of reforge and um highly recommend some of his content on on growth. Um, I think every marketer should take one of the Reforge courses on growth just to have a good uh, basic understanding and thinking, evolving your your marketing thinking away from sort of funnels into more of these, this idea of like a growth loop. So how do you take the output of your funnel and reinvest it into some growth loop so that you actually get compounding growth? Um, So big fan of Casey there. No surprise, I'm gonna disagree a little bit with this article. Not purely out of self-preservation, maybe a little bit. Um, (laughs) You know, sort of like the crux of his article is this idea of, um, you know, MarTech has evolved as a response to engineering constraints. And he sort of argues that if you lift these engineering constraints, then you should just build everything in-house. I would say the reality is most companies don't live in this utopia of unlimited engineering, resourcing, and competencies, Um, hence the need for third-party solutions. Um, And I think most marketers have some form of PTSD from having to make some in-house homebrew solution work, right? Um, (laughs) Often one of the complaints is, or one of the last things that gets built in some of these internal tools is a usable UI for the marketer. So I think at the end of the day, who's our ultimate customer, in my view, it's the marketing team and enabling them to do their job. Um, And so, uh, you know, who's best equipped to uh, identify some of the the problem spaces that need to be solved by marketing? Um, I think you also have to think about, you know, um, going back to the reality is most of us don't live in this world of unlimited engineering resources, you have to think about where should you be aligning those engineering resources with your business competencies. Hmm. Um, So especially in fintech, do you want to be a fintech company or do you want to be an ad tech company? Hmm. Um, Do you really want to spend your precious and often very limited engineering resources on building MarTech products or actual products that your consumers want to use in order to drive product-led growth? Um, But then let's, you know, for the sake of argument, say we do live in this utopia where we do have unlimited engineering resources, I'd say there's always going to be a need for that one person who sits at the intersection of engineering and marketing and data privacy to figure out that problem space, Um, whether that person is a product manager or a MarTech person. Take out the title. It doesn't matter. Um, Someone needs to be thinking about the problem space for our marketers, creating the roadmap, defining the requirements, uh, and partnering with these cross-functional teams to make sure the solutions are being actually built and delivered. And I think that's true whether you're building a solution or buying a solution. Um, I also think taking the view that MarTech is just third-party solutions is a very limited view. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think we need to think about, um, you know, build versus buy as this dichotomy. Oftentimes, it's probably a hybrid. Um, even if you're buying a solution, it takes a lot of engineering resources usually to instrument a new tool to get it to work, or you know, you may have to create, um, you know, some sort of like hacky solution to integrate it into whatever your existing data architecture is. So. I think most Martech stacks are going to have some sort of blend of both build and buy. Um, Mm. And most of us aren't working at Fing companies where realistically we can build everything in-house.
0: Yeah, there's so many great points in in that answer, Natalie. Um, One of the ones that stuck out to me is this, the idea of like, do we want to be a fintech company or do we want to be a company building martech tools and that's really a question that uh f- folks like deciding how you build your martech team need to decide like if you're gonna make half or more of your martech team engineers that are going to be building products in-house i think part of the sell internally is that we can then if we build something in-house that's really good and we eventually get to the ui piece of that we can potentially remarket that to our user base as like a new product or a new added feature value. But if you're in FinTech, like is, is that kind of like crossover that interesting? And um, yeah, like for me, I, I'm like, most of the background is in startup, uh, but I did have a stint in, in enterprise when I was at WordPress.com. And I joined the team with the uh, proposition that I would be kind of like the Uh, the email product manager internally where we were building something internally. But it made sense internally because like the WordPress user base, like they're using a CMS tool. Uh, They're often like having a form on the site and they can, if they have like an email tool on top of that, like it kind of made sense. But it it wasn't like staffed internally to support the massive project of what it actually requires to build uh, an email automation platform. And we, we did get to a stage where we had something that was like kind of functional but it didn't have a ui like i, I totally emphasize with like that the pain point that you said there like we were basically coming up with ideas and then using the engineering team that built the loose product internally to just like act as our ui and like it was mostly code like for 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 the earliest stages of it but yeah it's it's a really interesting concept for me like is martech for engineers like i buy the angle that engineers are kind of required in the Martech sphere to fully enable uh, your like knowledge worker marketer who might not be like a SQL expert might not have like CSS chops and needs a little help to get stuff over that finish line. Like I get that point of view, like engineers have a role to play in Martech, especially like conversion rate optimization. When we get into like data and tracking, but at the end of the day, like the main user of a marketing automation platform or a CDP or like a, an ad platform, like it's it's a marketer, like they're the ones coming up with the campaign, the idea, launching it. So I feel like MarTech vendors still need to sell to the end user, even though engineers like play a role in that, in, in that whole uh, journey, right?
1: Yeah. And it's difficult from the b 2 D side, um, you know, a lot of these MarTech tools, maybe overindex on the marketer as their ideal customer profile. Um, in some situations, you you've got two, right? You've also got your engineering team. And I I can also empathize with engineering teams who, you know, um, and we we went through some of this um in our sort of CDP decisioning, um, you know, like their fear is marketing's going to go off and buy a tool and not include engineering as part of that consultation process and suddenly we've got a tool that doesn't fit with our existing architecture. Um, you know, I can certainly empathize with that. Um yeah, I think it ultimately, you know, the the unsatisfactory answer is like it ultimately depends. Um it also depends how closely embedded is your engineering team uh with marketing, if it's a very um you know, large company that is very siloed from marketing and doesn't have dedicated resourcing to marketing, right? Do they actually understand the problems that marketing needs to solve? Um, And so that's why you always need that one person, whether it's a MarTech person or a product manager um, who, who can kind of be that translation layer between Um, you know, the marketing problems, and then also understand kind of the basic data infrastructure and data architecture to find the right solution.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I think the CDP space specifically is fascinating to see like on the product marketing side, like how they decide to market like who is that icp um especially like on on the reverse etl side like mm-hmm. i've seen a mix of them like some of them target heavily to the sql engineers like the the data team the folks that are like stitching pipelines together uh, that are getting the request for marketers to just like activate this data like push it into other tools but some of them like go the completely opposite route and they like target marketers like all the copy is about um, like how do you unleash your tools and like, hence the, the, the term about like going from reverse ETL to, to data activation, but yeah, I yeah, would love your, your take on, on, uh, on that journey. I know you built a composable CDP stack internally at Chime. Uh, you had the opportunity to kind of like overseeing that, that selection, the process and, and the implementation of it. Um, yeah, walk us through that journey and and maybe like share some of the most interesting learnings.
1: Yeah. So I, I can kind of start with, um, you know, the problem that we needed to solve for. So, um, you know, Chime's a fairly well-established uh, company. We've been around for, you know, 10 plus years. Um, and despite, you know, our longevity, we had just never, um, you know, onboarded or or used a customer data platform, um, which is pretty unusual when you get to a marketing org of a certain size, especially if you've, you're activating on many different channels. Um, so kind of this need around, oh, we need a CDP arose from, hey, we need to solve for personalization. Um, and ultimately there's no personalization at scale without data activation because you need all of that rich member data to power all of these, um, you know, maybe not quite one-to-one, but, um, you know, all these mythical, um, you know, uh, you know, ideal customer experiences. You need to have like yeah. all that contextual information about what people are doing, how they're interacting with the product, what their needs and wants are in order to actually move away from that one size fits all experience to more of that, hey, we understand what problem you need to solve. Let's give you more contextually relevant communications. Um, so we we had this, um, you know, need to focus on personalization. There's many reasons for that. Like one chimes in a fairly like commoditized space. um, And that banking as a service has made it easy for anyone to spin up like their own sort of, um, you know, checking and savings products. So, you know, personalization is a great branding opportunity to stand out from, you know, all the other companies doing um, similar things with uh, sort of like undifferentiated product offerings. Um, there's also the piece of, you know, everyone needs to be smarter about their customer acquisition cuts in the current environment we're operating in. So um, how do we be smarter about um, acquiring the right users with higher value? And you need a lot of rich first party data to inform a lot of those big bidding algorithms to do that. Um so uh, that was a big part of it. Um, and then additionally, right, as you're, you know, often companies grow, they add additional use cases and products going back to it no longer makes sense to have a one size fits all experience because people are coming to your product for different reasons or underlying use cases. Um, but to do that personalization piece, you need to solve for data activation. And so we started to look at a lot of the off the shelf CDPs, Um or the the you know like the more traditional cdp players um and um you know what was sort of like a big aha moment for me um this was probably about a year ago um i had happened to uh listen to um a data edge podcast about um you know, reverse ETL and data activation. And I think uh, Tejas, the founder of High Touch was on there. Um, And so that was a really big, um, insightful moment where, um, you know, suddenly the CDP space has evolved where you don't need to replicate the data that already exists in your warehouse. And there's a lot of complicating factors that result from that. I think when there's the piece of it's usually more expensive because a lot of the traditional CDP players are sort of, um, offloading their own data storage costs onto you for data that you already have stored in your warehouse somewhere. Um, There's sort of the uh, audience portability and data privacy piece. So in a heavily regulated space, um, as much as possible, you don't wanna be sending your uh, first party data to other tools for storage. Um, And the time to value piece. So we wanted to move very quickly kind of the value prop of a lot of these composable CDPs like census and high touch is that you can get up and running very quickly versus with a traditional CDP. Um, you know, it can often be a six month endeavor because you're spending a lot of time just, um, you know getting all that data instrumentation set up in a way that you can actually ingest your data into the CDP. So so you end up with a data activation problem right. to get data into your CDP. Um, <laughs> So that's one of the ironies of it. Um, So it made sense for us to go down the more composable CDP route, partly because we already had the, you know, uh, sort of like conform to the modern data architecture, um, you know, using Snowflake as our data warehouse. We have a lot of rich data. It is just an issue of how do we get the data out of the warehouse? And that's where something like reverse ETL, or the composable CDP really comes into play. Um, so yeah, in terms of the the audience portability and data security and the time to value, those were those were really big value props for us. Um and ultimately our um, engineering team was happier with that decision as well because hmm. they don't have to spend a lot of their resources um, you know, instrumenting an off-the-shelf CDP. So um in a way, that was uh, the right choice for us to solve the needs of our marketing team, as well as making our data eng team happy.
0: Very interesting. Thank, thanks for walking me through that. So I'm curious, like, what if you can paint the picture a bit better? Like, what what was the situation beforehand? Like, it sounds like the data engine team mm. spent a lot of time in Snowflake, and like you said, there was a lot of rich data in there. The quality was probably pretty good, which in a lot of cases, when people Uh, like have this. Is it ever?
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. (laughs) That's what I was
0: going to say. Like a lot of folks that are shopping for a CDP or even considering like either route, they're just like, um a a lot of folks don't even have a warehouse yet right like some do and it's just like yeah not perfect uh like sometimes our our billing data is in there or like our engineering team is using that so like there's there's this scale of maturity on on the data warehouse side but would you say that you were able to consider the composable route because of how a bit more on the sophisticated side of that scale that maturity scale you were in snowflake and like the ETL piece of that was already in place. Like you already had ETL tools that was collecting that first party data across like all your, your different tools with storing it in Snowflake. You were just like how right now, maybe you were using API integrations before to like pull some of that data out of there. It wasn't real time. So like that, that was that like a bit more of the status quo, like before you, you started that journey.
1: Yeah, so we we had a bunch of point-to-point integrations where okay. we were using Python scripts and Airflow to send data over to you know like a, a lot of our ad platforms. Um, and so that that works, but it's not necessarily scalable. So for us, you know, it would take you know maybe six weeks or so to set up a new pipeline to a new ad destination. Um, that's not super effective if you are trying to unlock new channels and test into them. I think one, it makes the cost of testing into new channels much higher because Mm -hmm. it's very uh, uh, resource intensive to just get that initial data import up and running um, versus something like a composable CDP, which is in the business of integrations. It's much easier to, um, you know, kind of plug and play. And a lot of times, right. It's, you know, we're sending sort of the same signals or data across multiple platforms. It's sort of like a create the model once, publish everywhere paradigm, instead of, you know, having to focus on, all right, how do we transform and model this data in a way that it can be received by this marketing destination? Um, the other piece with point-to-point integrations, um, you know, is definitely the the data privacy piece. So, um I think when we're in a heavily regulated space, but even if you're not, everyone still needs to conform to CCPA and GDPR and the other patchwork of regulations. And so it's really, you really need that um, uh, you know, member consent framework and that table where you are centrally storing all of your opt-in opt-out data. And you need a way to make sure that all of your pipelines are, um, uh, you know, governed by that consent framework. And when you have these point-to-point integrations, there's not, I think one, an easy way to sort of audit what data are you sending and where are you sending it to? And so, um, you know, you you don't, that, that consent framework is not as robust. So having more of like a hub and spoke model where Right, you've got your your set of tables. The other piece too is um, data governance. Right, um, going back to no one's data is clean, and data management is an issue. Right, you're you may have a definition of a customer in many different tables. Is it the same definition? Sometimes your definition of a customer changes over time. So, do you have sanctioned tables that are the source of truth for some of these business definitions? And uh, you know, with point to point integrations, you don't always know easily like which source table someone's using. Are we actually using the source of truth for our definition of a customer? So all of that's much easier to maintain with more of like a hub and spoke model. And that's, you know, kind of the, the main idea of a CDP, whether it's composable or off the shelf, you've got your sanction data sources and you know exactly where you're sending that data to.
0: Very cool. Yeah. It's a, a great practical answer on, uh, some of the efficiencies that are gained with trusting the warehouse as that like central, uh, source of truth, if you will. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, like something that we've been really deep on the podcast lately is, uh, related to this is this idea of like warehouse native MarTech, um, Reverse ETL is like warehouse native by definition, right? Like you, like you said, like they're not a traditional CDP, they're not making a copy of your customer data. They live on top of your warehouse and they're like activating that data. You can query your your Snowflake instance. There is like this like new category of customer engagement tools. So, like a um the marketing automation platform that you have to send out your lifecycle emails. Right now, most companies are making a copy of that Snowflake mm-hmm. instance. And the same argument that you did for, for the CDP, like you're probably paying by database size and, and that marketing automation platform. And you're running into a lot of the same point to point integration uh, situations that, that you just kind of walked us through. Do you see a path at some point where Chime might consider, or you might consider? a customer engagement platform like a castle.io or message gears that lives yeah. on top of your snowflake instance that doesn't copy your customer data.
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting problem. Um I think you know one of the limitations with a warehouse approach right now is latency. Um mm-hmm. so that's that's a big constraint. So if you want to do real-time personalization, um it's pretty hard to get that if you've got a, uh, a warehouse-based model. Um, and so that's where things like, you know, Phrase where, you know, they're storing a lot of uh, localized copies of your data so they can do more real-time experiences. Um, you know, it, it depends. Like, I, I think there's all, also the question of everyone wants to do real-time personalization. Do you really need real-time personalization? And there are certainly things you can do in your warehouse to circumvent some of that. You can also look at server-to-server integrations and just bypass the warehouse. I think that will be an interesting problem to solve. Like, how do we improve the latency of the warehouse? Because um, originally, you know, latency was less of a concern because, you know, the warehouse was powering things like our BI tools and we didn't need, there wasn't a real-time use case. Right. Um, so I'm sure there are people thinking about this problem space in terms of, do you have your a warehouse first approach for some of your customer engagement tools? I think it all comes down to latency and certain channels are going to require more real-time data. Lifecycle channels tend to be more biased towards real-time data because you want to be able to send like a contextual push notification in the minute right after someone does something. Right. Most companies aren't going to be able to get there right now with a warehouse first approach. That said, um, you know, this space is evolving pretty rapidly, so I wouldn't be surprised if that changes. For now, if you want to do real-time personalization, you know, you may need a localized copy of your data and a customer engagement tool to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. I think that some of the ways that the warehouse native customer engagement platforms are solving for this in, in the short term anyways are this kind of hybrid approach that you you basically laid out there where... Like for the most part, like most of the stuff is warehouse first and it updates like every night or like a couple of times per day. Um, it's not real time. It's a bit latent, but for the smaller use cases where you do need real time, like the lifecycle stuff, like the welcome journeys, like the push notifications, they allow you to build API integrations for some of those that are connected directly to first party data. So But then it gets in the whole argument, like if you're doing that and it is a point solution stuff, um, then you need to spend time on ID resolution after the fact when the data warehouse is updating your customer data. But then you've got different data sources in there activating the same user IDs. So it gets a bit messy, but yeah, I want to chat a bit about like the idea of personalization and and how do you get to that like one to one journey you said that like it was one of the the use cases or some of the one of the initial problems to, to going down the whole uh, that that whole journey um you had the pleasure of tackling experimentation and personalization strategy uh during the CDP journey um, what can you share about um, the stack that brings this to life uh, on top of uh, uh, high touch and maybe advice that you have for for others that are, are starting down this path also?
1: Yeah, well, so, um, you know, in terms of experimentation and you, you know, you kind of also need experimentation to, um, you know, deliver on some of these personalized experiences. Um, a lot of experimentation actually revolves around, uh, I would say, the the process and the culture as a starting point. I know hmm. we jump straight into tooling, but MarTech's also people in process, too. Um, <laughs> so some of this is just um, taking the time to standardize your experimentation approaches, um, right? Do you have standardized experimentation briefs? Do you have uh, a framework for prioritizing your different experiments? Opportunities, because right, especially if you're operating in a world of A/B testing, there's no shortage of um, A/B test permutations you can run, and you're probably limited by um, you know your traffic size. So you need to be intentional about which experiment opportunities you're going to prioritize first. So having a good prioritization framework having a good experimentation brief, even basic things like, do people know how to form a hypothesis? You, you know, it's one of those things you just like assume everyone knows and um, you'd be surprised, like, is this hypothesis actually testable or not? Um, Developing experimentation fluency. So um, empowering your marketers to understand minimum detectable effects and statistical significance, and then that culture around experimentation. So Um, I think it's easy to create a lot of perverse incentives when you're running an experimentation program. At the end of the day, it's not necessarily about, um, you know, uh, only launching experiments that you have a high confidence will win. Um, It's how do you create learnings and opportunities to build off of those losses. And another way to think about it, there is no um uh you know loser experiment right as long as you've you know developed a learning that will inform future um testing opportunities um so yeah i mean that's to say like a good experimentation culture is pretty foundational to doing personalization um the tooling side is interesting especially in the martech space i don't know and i think this is an area of opportunity i don't know if anyone if there's a good third party tool that has solved the need to centralize all of your experimentation across your company, across all of your different surfaces, all of these different marketing tools will, you know, offer their own, um, experimentation features. So most ESPs or customer engagement tools will have some sort of like experimentation features that allow you to run A-B tests with your, you know, emails, um, The issue there is um, if you've got your marketing team running experiments on their marketing channels and the same users are grouped in different product experiences or tests, right? You don't actually know what experience is causing whatever lift you're measuring. And so you end up with these really, um, uh, you know, a lot of like data muddiness. and failed AA experiments where, um, right, you, you randomize users, but you give them the same experience uh, and you're still seeing like what one group outperformed the other, like, yeah, yeah. you don't know what, what is actually, um, uh, you know, you have no concrete learnings. You don't actually understand the why of, you know, what is causing this change in behavior. Um, and so there, there's definitely a need to um, centralize all of your experimentation bucketing. And that's why you see a lot of companies building their exper- experimentation platforms in-house. Um, and so I think that's an interesting problem space that is still an unmet need in the, the third party tooling space, right? They're all solving it within the confines of, um, you know, their own individual um, marketing tools and channels and not thinking about like, All right. What sort of, um, you know, experimentation layer space do we need to do to ensure we're creating mutually exclusive, um, experiments and we have conviction in the results?
0: Yeah. It's super fascinating topic there. Uh, I, yeah, I've got a lot of ideas and have similar, uh, kind of problems with, uh, That whole idea of just like, how do you not muddy the waters with multiple teams running multiple different experiments that are overlapping with uh, uh, like users in in the same uh, kind of experiments there? And it's something we ran into a lot at at WordPress.com. It's funny you say, like, most companies that at least, like, reach a certain level, like, are our, our building this in-house, and that's that's what we were doing as well, um, and it was kind of, like, cross-channel, so a lot of it was code in the back end, and, like, uh, we just needed to, like, figure out a way to sync the user list within the tool itself, um, mm-hmm. and, like, we had an internal CDP as well, so it was kind of hooked up to that, but yeah, it's a uh, it's going to be cool to see if there is a company that solves this for startups, because um, like a startup's never going to build an internal experimentation platform unless they're in that like martech space, so to speak. But um, I'm looking at time and <laughs> I know we're already super close on time. Um, maybe I'll ask you uh, two last yeah. questions. Sure. Um uh, one thing I really loved about how you started that, that answer there was, you know, we jumped right into tools, but a big piece of MarTech is the people side of things. So I wanted to ask you uh, a people skills question. Um, you basically hold a position right now where obviously you need to be tech savvy into the weeds on data and, and tooling, but you also need to balance this with the people side of things, right? Having worked in enterprise fintech companies remotely during COVID and now also back in a physical office, um, I'd love to ask you, like, do you have this go-to method for harmonizing different opinions or communication styles within a team or like take this a different way, just like how, like what tips do you have for solving conflicts between different teams?
1: Mm, Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I think it's especially uh, relevant for the, the MarTech space or in any sort of role when you're at the crossroads of many different teams. So the alignment question is, interesting what i have found helpful is um one have a curiosity mindset when it comes to working with other teams most of the time misalignment happens just because we're not speaking the same language um right so marketing might be focused on um you know growth outcomes um data eng teams or analytics teams might be focused on data quality Uh, I think one of the reasons why um, our role and job exists is as that translation layer. So as much as possible, understanding what these other teams or individuals are optimizing for and what they care for, and then figure out how you can connect the dots between what you're trying to do and what they're trying to do. Hmm. A lot of the times, right, there's sort of like, I think, two different forms of misalignment. There's, we we agree on the outcome, we just disagree on the how. And I think those are very solvable um, misalignment issues, right? That is often just a, a translation problem. Um, and then there's we disagree on the how. Now you've got like some major issues, <laughs> <laughs> or sorry, if, if you you disagree on the on the outcome, right? Then then you've got some major misalignment issues, yeah, and that's yeah. where you kind of need your leadership to come in and really um hone in on what the priorities are but yeah i think for the most part most misalignment in companies just comes from um you know not speaking the same language and right we're very guilty of this in martech we use a lot of jargon i think we need to do a better job of abstracting the jargon away um and use sort of the terms that these different teams are using so um you know take take like you know the the cdp space as an example like marketing says they want to solve for data activation well that's kind of meaningless for like a a data (laughs) engineer so um right How, how do we translate this in a way that will resonate with these different teams. And especially as marketers, right, we should be in the business of positioning and figuring out what the value props are for our audience. So think about who your audience is and what value props are going to resonate with them.
0: Yeah, I I was actually going to say that I think April Dunford says this super well, like for Uh, function in a company that's supposed to be really good at value proposition and positioning. Marketers really suck at like positioning what we do in, in any shape or form with like all the buzzwords that we have there. Yeah, love your answer, Natalie. This has been a super fun conversation. Um, you're uh, you're ahead of Martek, a devoted mom, a loving wife, an aficionado of so bad they're good movies, a passionate uh, practitioner of the hot girl walk for daily empowerment, and despite also being a firm believer in the underrated value of doing absolutely nothing. You still have a lot going on. Uh, So one question we ask all of our guests at the end of the interview is how do you remain happy and successful in your career? And how do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy?
1: Um, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, anyone who says they found balance. um, Boy, would I love to figure out how Um, I I think especially so for me, I've got uh, a four year old, um, you know, every day is sort of walking a tightrope while while juggling. And, you know, you constantly feel like you're going to fall off. As an example, my kid is sick today and any parent with a young kid who has a sick kid, there's that, oh, my God, this day is going to be awful. And I don't know how I'm going (laughs) to get through this. Um, And yet we persevere. Um, I think for me, what I have made peace with is knowing that um, I'm not going to do it all. And I have to be intentional with which ball I'm choosing to drop at a given time. Um, so there are going to be some days where I'm a not so great mom or or not the the level of mom I want to be, right? We're, we're going to use a lot of screen time today. Um, And then there are days where maybe I'm giving 50% of myself to work. And that's okay, too. Um, It's just being intentional with those trade offs. Um, And I think that's where the empowerment comes. So there's the recognition of you're not going to do it all, you're not on any given day, you're not going to be everything to everyone. Um, So which thing in my life or career am I choosing to prioritize right now? Um, And I think that's, that's one superpower that parents develop really good prioritization you start to really hone in on what matters the most at any given point in time and really Mm -hmm. figuring out what your north star needs to be um and the reality is too um right how much how many of us spend time on things that probably don't matter and it's okay to to let those things go um but you know, for me, having a very clear focus on what my North Star is. So for me, my North Star is uh is my child. Everything I do, even my career, right? It's a, a means to an end for for him, whether it's you know, providing him with certain opportunities or setting a, an example of what it means to um have a have a career, have a passion, have a focus. Um right? It's really all for him. And so if any of these things are ever in conflict with another, I know what my values are and what my North star is. And so that also gives me some peace of mind.
0: Love the answer. It's super powerful. Thanks for sharing the, the North star there and appreciate you uh, still making time for us today, despite uh, him being uh, sick psych today. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for your time Natalie. This is a super fun conversation. I feel like the, we skipped a bunch of questions that we had planned on on going through, but I feel like there's there's a lot of takeaways uh, on on our like Ismar Tech for Engineers convo, but also like the the CDP stuff. So, yeah, thank you so much Natalie. This is awesome.
1: Yeah, awesome.